uh, the church folk, and um, you know they, they presented a lot of a lot of duress to things. Now I certainly believe that the fear of hell ought to create duress in our lives. I, I'm, I'm not discounting that at all, but there's something going on here that that we need to um, consider, and and I know that. Uh, you know, when, when you have a lot of media play in something, when you have a lot of books sold, I think the late great planet Earth, um, I was trying to get a, an update on how many copies that sold, but it's, it's something like in the 20 million copies range. Um, that's a lot of books, particularly when you can consider other things. Uh, in that, also the the one of the big study Bibles, the Ryrie Study Bible, uh, when that came out, um, about five percent of U.S. households purchased that Bible, that particular study Bible, and that doesn't seem like very much, but when you consider all of U.S. households, how many people were going to church uh, at that time, that still had a, a large impact. Uh, on things, and so we're we're going to be addressing some of these issues. I want to I want to say a couple other things too. Remember how many guys were here for the Sunday school classes where we talked about the overpopulation myth? Okay, you know you've got a guy in the late '60s. I can't think of his name right now off the top of my head who was on late night television with Johnny Carson. I think I think the total number of times was 24 times in six years, talking about into the world environmental destruction, all of this. Of course, all of this is coming out of what? First World War, Second World War, all these other wars, the Cold War, um, the fear of nuclear holocaust, right? So in general, we have a general sense, not just in the church, but also uh, in the, the larger portions of the populace about the world coming to an end. And in keeping with this, I'll tell you that when I was um, 20 years old, I had come back to visit my family one more time before I went back to college and was getting married that following spring. I was taking a walk with my father. And my father said to me, you know what, son? Um, and I was born in 1970. And he, he, as we're taking this walk, this is like the night before I'm driving back up to college in Minnesota and he says, you know what, son, I never thought that I would ever even see your 15th birthday, right? And in large part, he came to know Christ during these times. God blessed him. And I'm not saying God doesn't use things like this to bring people to the church. The, the question is, are we going to, how do we decide what scripture says? How do we work through these things? Um, and do we simply allow um, Media. Think right now where we are. Right now, we're all. If we were suspicious in the past a little bit, today we're even more suspicious uh, in these things. As a matter of fact, in Hal Lindsey's, if we'd have watched that trailer a little farther, it questioned the the fact of the invention of the computer and how that was uh, going to be used by Satan. Now, not that there isn't. It can't. You know, like all technology, it can be used for good or evil. But their slant was, you know, this, this could possibly be the thing. And I just, I want us to understand questions of the end of the world, questions of uh, the end of all time, 
as, as any good person, and even as Christians, we're going to come to those things. We're going to approach those things. We need to ask questions about those things. But we, it is very important that we are careful to make sure that we are allowing Scripture to inform us preeminently and not the news. Right? Now, I think we, as a congregation, would generally agree that uh, there's a lot of turmoil in the world. There's a lot of turmoil right here at home. Freedoms are in question. Right? It seems like 1984 is among us. Right? The book, not the year. Um, But I I want us um, to trust in God, trust in his word uh, above all other things. All that being said, um, a, a couple of things, clipboard, all right? So a lot of the, the, the theme that I'm using for this is out of this uh, book right here, The Covenantal Kingdom, a brief summary of the biblical argument for postmillennialism. We'll talk further about that. Um, if you're interested in it, this is no longer in print. Um, seems like a lot of the good books I like are no longer in print. Um, I know Ralph Smith. He's our CREC pastor in uh, Japan. Um, he's uh, the, the, I guess his son is now the, the primary pastor. and He's a secondary, but does a lot of writing for Theophilus Institute. Um, he's written a number of books. One of the best books on understanding the Trinity that's, that's uh, been written. I think so anyway. But, but he's a good scholar. And... Um, if you're interested in this, um, Ralph sent me a PDF, and I am happy to share it with anybody, so we'll pass this around. If you're interested in me emailing you the PDF, um, then I will um, take that at the end and get that out this week. Um, I want to speak to something else that is a challenge inside of our circles, right? If you are... Um, new to reform thinking or new to um, some of the teachings that, that you may be hearing here or from podcasts that you're listening to that take, uh, you know, for, for me, it's, it's typology and imagery. And, you know, I think if you've been in the sermons, you've heard me preach, I'm going to be bringing in things and and showing, okay, Scripture tells us this, so this is what this is telling us here, right? Brings clarity to it. If these things are new to you, you know what often happens with us? We get really excited about the fact that we have a new and clear understanding about the Scriptures. And because of that, our reaction is to get so excited to want to share this with everyone around us, our Christian friends who don't have the clarity yet and we want to come in and we want to take them with the the bat of understanding and straighten them out don't do that right so i, I want to read something to you in proverbs 19 beginning of verse 1 it says better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one who is perverse in his lips and is a fool you're saying pastor what does it have to do with anything but listen to verse 2 Also, so this is connected, right? So don't be perverse in your lips and be a fool, right? Walk in your integrity. 
Also, it is not good for a soul to be without knowledge. And he who hastens with his, um, and he, he sins who hastens with his feet. So if, if you have knowledge, don't hasten with your feet because you will sin against your brothers. Okay? So let us be calm. Let us be patient. Break bread with people. Talk to people. Do it in a conversational thing. And, and above all, know that whether they come to your, your understanding or not, they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And by the way, how many of you guys, was it an immediate click when things made sense? Like, like it just, it was, oh, I got this new understanding and it all fell into place instantaneously. Anyone? No, because that's not how God works, right? What does God do? God opens your eyes up, right? And then things start working through, and then you get to more understanding and more understanding and more understanding. That is the ordinary way that God works. So don't expect the fact that you've got a new understanding, um, a a new point of view perhaps on, on this or any other point of Scripture, and say, um, you got to do this. You know, there's a book by uh, Paul Little called How to Give Your Faith Away. Um, and it's been a long time since I read it. I think it's generally good, but it's been a long time. But on the cover of the book, at least the one that was available in the 80s, was you got this guy standing there, and on his back is, is, a, is the, the, the supposed Christian, and he's got the first guy in a scissor lock around the waist from, you know, he's on his back, scissor locked around this. He's reaching over the top, pinching his nose so that he has to open his mouth, and he's got the Bible, and he's trying to shove it down his, his throat. That's the not what to do, okay? I, I want to mention a few other things here. Psalm 130 in this warning stage. Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good and pleasant it is, Four brethren who dwell in unity, right? Our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to dwell in unity, and it is good and pleasant. People won't hear you if you are not good and pleasant in your presentation. Ephesians 4, verse, beginning in verse 1, tells us, we're going to read down to verse 5 and then pick up again in verse 11. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, that is to say, with the level of humility, right, and care in how you do it, with long-suffering. Sometimes that means to bring someone along, you really got to work it, right? Bearing with one another in love. Remember what we talked about, bearing? What is that in, in Scripture? It's carrying, it's lifting up. So we are to lift up one another in love. So that's prayer, that's, that's time in, in reference to the other things in a long-suffering and low and gentle way. Endeavoring, listen, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. Or as we would say in the South, y'all. 
picking up in verse 11 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, it says this, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of saints, for the work of the ministry, for the... (coughs) Could someone get me a bottle of water, please? Um, For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in what? In the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to the perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So So it is a process for us. It's a process for others. Love your neighbor. That we should no longer be children. Of course, the whole contrast is is so that we will no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Thank you. So what, what is the point of bearing with one another and doing all these things? So that we won't be carried along by every wind of doctrine. We, to be not like children. And, and how does this happen? This happens by the trickery of man and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But, in contrast to that deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth of love may grow up in all things to him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, that's all of God's people, join and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And you are saying, Pastor Dan, why are you wasting all this time on this subject? People of God, guard yourselves. Bring people along just as God has patiently brought you along. Okay? I know we feel like there's a sense of urgency when we get an understanding, we get a truth, and we recognize how important it is we want to go out there and get it to everyone. Well, first of all, you don't change anyone's minds. The Spirit of God changes people's minds, right? Yes, use the opportunities that you have. Go to people you know that, that may be open. Maybe even talk to some who aren't, but do it in such a way that it's not threatening, okay? I, I'm, I'm very serious because I, I was once this myself, Right? And I just know what it is. You know, the, the phrase, zeal without knowledge. It's like a bull in a china shop. Okay? Or a three-year-old in a room full of glass cases with candy behind them. <laughs> right? So having said all that, let's get to our subject matter uh, on the whole. The Bible is God's word to his people. He uses in his word symbolism, typology, numbers, repetition, literary devices, like chiasms. Now, I'm going to pause right there and say, uh, for that, I've got a bunch of books up here. These are recommended resources. The first one on the table is this one right here. It's the Bible, right? We've got to use the Bible to do what? To understand the Bible. Now, if you want to get that, one of the best resources I know on the subject is this book right here, Through New Eyes. Okay? And basically, it's not because it's new concepts. It's because we have modern eyes, and we don't understand scriptural language, the way the scriptures were written. I do have some of these copies 
Brand new copies for $20 a piece upstairs in my office. If uh, you're interested, come see me. We'll get those, um, and, uh, and I'll order more if we need them. You can find this sometimes on Amazon, but usually for considerably more and used. Um, I've got a contact who gets me these printed, and we get them at wholesale prices. Um, I certainly recommend uh, some of these other book, books. Obviously, The Covenantal Kingdom. Um, a, one of the big questions in eschatology is Matthew 23 and through 25. Um, this is a newer release. Um, who's read this book? I know. Who has this book? Okay. Yeah. I was going to get it, and then somebody blessed me with one. So um, These are two that I have upstairs, again, that you can get. The Vindication of Jesus Christ, the Brief Reader's Guide to Revelation. Okay, um, this one and th this one, any of these answers in an hour are real short ones. Um, if you are interested in actually reading it, I will give them to you for free. Why the End is Not Near, this one of course is James Jordan, but Why the End is Not Near is by Pastor Dwayne Garner. He's in Cary, North Carolina, um, but when he wrote this, he was with me down in Louisiana. I have... Uh, David Chilton's Days of Vengeance, very good work on Revelation, which is back in print, um, although at a pretty pricey price. It's still $45, but it's a good book. Um, <clears throat> Gary North's Unconditional Surrender, um, God's Program for Victory, and that's going to be talking about postmillennialism on the whole. Hey, who here has read Last Day's Madness by Gary DeMar? Anyone? Okay, it's a little bit thicker. Um, so I would say this is the diet version of this. Okay, but there's a lot of information in here. How many guys have heard of Gary DeMar? Okay, how many guys have heard him referred to as Uncle Gary? Okay, just three or four, okay. Well, anyway, great book, highly recommended. This, this for me... When I was becoming Reformed and I, and I was getting to the place to, to look at eschatology in this way of thinking, this is the book for me 20 years ago that turned the corner for me. Um, this is Jim Jordan's commentary on Daniel, something I've only read pieces of, uh, but I do believe that someone in here has read the whole thing, yes, or did just part? Most of it, okay. Was it helpful? <coughs> Okay, and then uh, these last two, my children for my birthday, because these are pricey too, um, got me Peter Lightheart's two-set commentary on Revelation, um, and, uh, but I'd, I'd, I haven't had a chance. I've looked at a couple of things in it, but I haven't dug into it deeply just because I just got it in July. So resources here to understanding, in large part, what I'm trying to tell you is we need help understanding God's Word and understanding things because we are moderns. We don't think the same, right? So coming back to the Bible's God's Word to His people, He uses symbolism, typology, numbers, repetition, and literary devices like chiasms. And I've mentioned chiasms before, but but... It's not just in the scriptures. You see this in a lot of ancient writing, but there's a point that God is making when we can understand chiasms, and that's basically um, there's a center point of the passage. There's a one, we'll call it 1A, 
and there's a 1B at the end. And if you can work through a lot of these Old Testament passages, you'll find um, that in them are, this pattern exists, and it can help you come down to what's the central point of that passage, right? Um, we'll explain that later. That's a digression to a degree, but I want you to understand that God has used a variety of things to help us understand his words. Jim Jordan says this, in addition to the ancient literary structures of the Bible, we also have to take into account the fact that the Bible uses a symbolic worldview. Bible people knew full well that the world was round, but having a figure of speech, they spoke of it as having corners, pillars, and other things because the world is a home. We don't think symbolically, but the ancients did. And the writers of the Bible did. This was even more of a problem for American evangelicals because our churches are generally bare of visual symbolism due to our understanding of the second commandment, or I might say misunderstanding. And our churches lack rituals like Eastern, Orthodox, Anglican, or even the Roman Catholic Church. Thus, we are not accustomed to thinking visually. That's the larger point. We're not accustomed to thinking visually. Now, here's something I want us to recognize, again, because I'm, I'm trying to set us up to a degree to have an understanding that we need to understand the Scriptures well in order to understand any concerns about prophecy, any concerns really about the point. I... I as I've been studying this all summer, just in a general way and trying to work through it, I am utterly amazed with the way that the scriptures are treated and a disregard for Old Test for the Old Testament in such a way as I don't even understand how you could even read most of the passages in the Gospels and understand at all what's going on there, right? unless you really understand what's happening in the Old Testament. You see, in, in the modern age, we have uh, put to use reductionism. Anybody know what reductionism is? Basically, you take, we, we've done this in science, and we've applied this same methodology into understanding literature, and that is you break it down smaller and smaller and smaller, as small as you can possibly get it. And the larger picture doesn't matter because you're looking at it at the smallest space. Now, I'm not saying we don't or shouldn't in any way do that, but when you lose sight of the whole, right, we can see this sort of in modern medicine, right? If you don't have a good person coordinating all your specialists to kind of put the information together, you're going to not come to complete conclusions as to what's going on in your health. Is that right? We generally agree that? Right? So we, we need to understand that the same thing happens. We, when we try to take just a verse here and a verse there all by itself, right? Or we try to explain what something means by taking one ver word in a verse, right? If you've been with me for more than a year, you know sometimes I have preached and I'll include a large passage, right? 
and I talk about, okay, what's the context of the whole book that we're studying out of? Okay, what happened right before this? What's going to happen afterwards? That's all part of the narrative. Don't get caught up in these things. And we'll be talking about some of the problematic things over time here. There's a second problem that we've had, and that is, and in, in I, I wanted to look at this in more detail just to try to put a pinpoint figure on it, but I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm going to guess sometime between 1900 and 1940. I think it starts to see a culmination of things uh, right before the, the faithful men um, leave Princeton Seminary. Okay? And, but but we, we, there's this discounting of the Old Testament. And picking and choosing what parts of the New Testament are actually relevant or important or even matter. Now, there's a scholar who died actually earlier this year, um, Bishop Spong. Anybody heard of him before? He, he was a bishop in the Episcopal Church in the United States. And basically, I don't know his de- dealings with the Old Testament so much, but basically, if Jesus didn't say it himself, that part of the Bible doesn't matter. Discount all of the all of Paul's sayings. Don't like Paul, so we're just not even going to pay attention to him. And he would say this in in seminars and in teachings and in his books. And you and you say to yourself, how, how do you even stay as a leader in a church like that, um, right? But you know, I don't know. At the end of the day having read him more and listened to him more he didn't he didn't even believe in the resurrection so unfortunately i i don't see him uh with the he, he was even like we got to do away with this whole jesus died on the cross business because that's just gory and violent we don't want to think about such things and, and and i'm saying this and that sounds crazy but these types of folks have been impacting how people study the scriptures for quite a long time but additionally We've got to stop thinking in this reductionistic way that the Old Testament was Old Covenant, so I guess I should know a little bit, but I've got to focus exclusively on the New Testament. People, you cannot understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. I meant to bring it down, but I recommend that that if if I was going to say, hey, where do you start to get a good understanding, right? Read the Through New Eyes book and then read... Peter Lightheart's A House for My Name. Okay, how many guys have read that book? How many guys have heard of it? Okay, well, the good news is the A House for My Name has got an audio uh, book available on the Canon Plus app if you, if you like to do audio books. And, and what Peter does is he takes the Old Testament and tells the story in chronological order. Because as you know, the, the Old Testament is not laid out in chronological order. And this becomes very helpful. One other thing in terms of understanding things um, beyond simply being woefully ignorant of the Old Testament is, is the fact because a lot of churches don't sing the Psalms anymore. Again, to understand the Psalms, which is a lot of what we sing here, uh, to understand the Psalms, there's typology, there's imagery, there's excuse me, doctrine, all kinds of things there. And the more that we're separated from singing the psalms, um, and I'm not exclusive psalmody, but I'm saying that it needs to be 
a very large portion of what we do. Um, and, and there are mod plenty of modern versions. You know, I've, I think I've wore out the Sons of Korah um, almost to the point where my wife's like, can we listen to something else? All right, but I'm just saying that, that there's all kinds of, of uh, folks doing even some modern versions. I actually care in it how close are they to, the God, to God's word. That's the most important part. Um, there's a few terms I want us to uh, talk about. Basically, there are three positions in studies of eschatology, um, and it's basically regarding the time of the second coming of Christ, right? So premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. Okay, premillennialism teaches that Christ returns before the end of history to inaugurate an earthly kingdom of a thousand years. It's kind of just a basic line. And that is uh, things like what we saw here with the late great planet Earth, um, that dispensational theology, which is basically dispensationalism, is God has different sections of times and expectations, and whether you fail or are successful to it, he just keeps changing things. He's kind of operating in this, I've even heard it described this way, as a plan B. He's always coming up with other plans because things aren't working out exactly right. And if you hear that out loud, that sounds really bizarre when you think about the sovereignty of God. Um, amillennialism denies an earthly kingdom age and says the coming of Christ is at the end of history. And postmillennialism agrees with amillennialism that the coming of Christ ends history it also agrees with premillennialism that there will be a kingdom of God on earth and in time. However, the postmillennialist believes that Christ will bring his kingdom through the work of the Holy Spirit in the church and then return to this world at the end of history when God's kingdom purposes have been fully realized. And just a small window into that, if this is new for you, that the nations will be discipled. Right. So I, I would just kind of say it in this way. You know, premillennialism, the world is coming to an end, and it's imminent, imminent, imminent. And Christ is going to come, um, and he's going to, when he does that, he's going to rapture the church out. And then, then there's going to be a period of time where, um, you know, the world gets even worse. And right before it self-destructs, Jesus comes back, sets up a thousand-year reign. And there's a whole bunch of other points in there. Amillennialism denies the earthly kingdom and says the coming of Christ is at the end of history. Um, and I think that might be an oversimplification, but, but I, let me just say that the, 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 um, we agree, and this is what I say our church's position is, um, that um, Jesus Christ does come back at the end of history. And so... I want us to understand that one of the big differences, there, there's ah mills that are pessimistic. The world's just going to get worse and worse. Ah, it'll just work out in the end because Christ will come back at the end of time. And there's, there's optimistic ah mills who are still like, you know, I, I see it at things closing at the end of the destruction of Jerusalem, and they take that position, but they're, they, they really are having a, you know, they're like, yeah, I, I believe in the sovereignty of God, God working all these things out, all these things happening. And, and, and you know, my point to a optimistic ah-mill is just step over the line and just decide you're post-mill. Um, I think there are implications 
I think there are I think there are implications in terms of how this works out in our lives, and we'll have to talk about that uh, a little further. I think there's a couple of things um, um, Bonson brings up. You know, the the questions are: Is the church age inclusive of the millennium? Or and and the second one is: Will the church age be a time of evident prosperity for the gospel on earth, with the church achieving worldwide growth and influence? such that Christianity becomes the general principle rather than the exception to the rule. And I think those are the two big questions to consider, and you'll find those questions posed. Um, if you've signed up, I'll send out that file, and you'll find that in the first chapter. Um, well, one of the things that, that we've got to bear in mind, and I'm just, just sticking a few thoughts um, into our into where we're at, and that is to say, Jesus Christ at His ascension ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father, right? And what does He say as this is happening? He says, "All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me." Right? Um, wh- when was Satan defeated? At the cross, right? Now, not in the way that any of us expected, not in the way that that many Jews expected, not even the way that his own disciples expected, right? Satan is defeated, right? Our sins, we've we've been delivered from our sins out of the house of bondage because of the work of Christ. Now, in Christ, we have the ability to choose to follow God and do right things or choose to sin before Christ, before he transformed our lives. We could only sin. But now we can choose to do the right thing. We are out of the, we're, we're set free. Satan is weak. He's not gaining momentum. If we look at the news, we might say he's gaining momentum. And he might, to some degree, that there are evil things growing in the world. And, and we might even say here in our own country, but, but the United States isn't God's savior to the world. Jesus Christ is. And I've said this before. I'll say it again. Empires fall, but the church remains. And this has to be part of the way that we view our, our lives. I don't want to take much more time just now. Um, we have time for a couple of questions. I know I didn't really, I don't know if I posed much in terms of questions Yet, yes, sir. Is Satan bound? Is Satan bound? As the strong man, you're saying he's not. He was defeated at the cross. Is would you take it that Satan's bound? Um, he's bound in in a great many ways, much more than he was before Christ. Right? Um, he he's not running up into heaven like he did with Job. Right? He's he's defeated. He's a he's a singular being, only able to occupy. And he's always been this, only able to occupy one place right um, part of his thing is is that he gets lots of people believing stuff he don't have to worry about the pagans right he's focused on the people of God and he's of course going to go out there and try to uh, attack a few don't don't be uh, thinking that there's a, a demon behind every bush now I do think that paganism in the raw presents that um, but the more that more that Christendom grows, 
the less demon possession there is. And just to be clear, no Christian can be possessed by a demon. I don't know if that fully answers your question, but I would argue he, he has got very little power. Um, he's not powerless, but, but he has, he doesn't, you know, particularly for the people of God, we, we are set free from that bondage that he was a part of. And actually in today's sermon, we'll address some of that. Yes? Yeah, so is it correct to think that he's on a leash? I mean, I would make that argument all the time, but he's not on a leash like, okay, I'm going to let you off the leash and you're going to go chew people up. Um, like, you know, there's not going to be this time later where he's going to gain greater influence. I don't believe that that's what Scripture shows. Yes? So um, the answer to your question, let's see if I get this right. The first question is, one, postmillennialism, it doesn't believe in a rapture. Is that what you're, that's the first yeah, question. Or, or at least in the classical, at least in the way that we've been brought up to believe in a rapture. Yes, that is true. What was the second part? Of, the, of these three that we just described right here, yes. I'm not going to say that there isn't some small group somewhere that has a secondary concern, uh, but I would, I, you know, in, in the general three schools, big schools of thought, although I might argue for the United States, um, you know, we're not, postmillennialism isn't as big as it, as it once was because it once was the only view okay there were a few small pockets here or there but you know we'll get into some of this later I want I'm gonna give a couple of historical things along the way but I really want us to say what does scripture say I do think it's important like books like the end is not near and last days madness those are very helpful in looking at some of not only the scriptural con concerns but also lays out well where did where did this dispensational theology developed from how did it gain um, you know such uh, you know a popular belief and again I, I as I shared earlier I think there's a, a clear connection okay between the fact that the secularists were saying the world's coming to an end the invention of the nuclear bomb all these things we've done to destroy ourselves and um, you know this all that's rising at the same time um, as, uh, as, as the, the dispensationalists are rising in their, their teachings as well. Uh, one thing I want to just point out briefly here, um, I've got a dear family member who calls me on a regular basis and it seems like we have a reoccurring conversation about, well, aren't there more wars and more earthquakes and more uh, big storms and all of these things? And I said, well, I think if you're a good student of history, Probably not. And here, but here's what we have. Today, we have more equipment out there monitoring all of these things. And we have, because of the internet and other 
other technologies, we know much more about what's happening. If you thought, you know, there's still, there's narrow focuses, think about the fact that most people um, throughout history in the modern age got their information from the newspaper, right, which only has so many pages, which can only talk about so many, and the nightly news, which was 30 minutes. It's a very narrow, narrow scope, right? And so today, you know, we get instantaneous notices about an earthquake here, a thing there. Yep, that really was a tornado that happened in that neighborhood over there last week. A lot of that has to do with we have a lot more technology at play, not so much that there's more. Particularly, uh, it's, it's much easier to, to prove this point as it relates to war. Um, if you study history with any kind of measure of detail, um, man has hated each other and have been killing each other by the millions for a long time. That's not a new thing. Um, and actually what we find is the more that Christendom grows, um, the less war there is. Yes? Um, as I've dialogued with people about the post-mill here, um, one question that comes up is when Jesus is talking about the way is narrow, mm -hmm. you will find it. How do you reconcile that with the advancement of Christendom? Okay. That's a longer question, and so... We're actually five minutes over, <laughs> and I have to love our Sunday school teachers upstairs as well. So um, we're going to get to some scriptural applications um, over time, and, and we'll address that. Um, but uh, let, us, uh, let us pray. I thank you for the question. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this day. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would grant us your mercies. Please prepare our hearts for worship and the renewal of your covenant promises to us. In Jesus' name, amen.